the subject of study of religion leads to a lot of misunderstanding. Usually people think, are you religious? Are you trying to convert me? Uh, what do you believe? And those aren't the questions that brought me into that at all. I was curious, brought up without much religious background, a kind of vague Protestant culture in my family. My father had given up his ferocious Presbyterian family's uh, obsession with Calvinism for Darwin as soon as he met Darwin in college. He discovered evolution, dropped religion like a hot potato and, and became a research biologist. So I was brought up to be to think, well, religion is only for you know uneducated people, not like us, who understood about science and the superiority of science. But I loved poetry and music and dance of every kind, and including religious dance, like the Hopi dances that I saw in New Mexico, um, the songs at a bar mitzvah, uh, the music of Notre Dame or Catholic churches, amazing. And because I wasn't Catholic, it was okay to, to love that music. Then, when I was about 15, I was invited to go to San Francisco one afternoon, and I thought anything that happens in San Francisco is going to be better than Sunday afternoon in boring Palo Alto, so I took off. And we went to an enormous Billy Graham crusade. I had no, no idea, who's this man, Billy Graham? Anyway, there were 18,000 people in the, uh, I think it was the Cow Palace, was it the Cow Palace or Candlestick Park, which was the baseball stadium, packed into the stadium and, and 6,000 in the parking lot. There were highways jammed for miles all around. This was a very big deal. I had no clue. Walked in and this extraordinary charismatic preacher was talking about America. And he was saying things like, this is a terrible country. I've never heard anyone talk like this. The terrible country, he said, had to do with the fact that this country had just set off bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki not 20 years before, and was now trying to build bigger nuclear weapons. And the, the most intelligent people were driven into science for that purpose. And also he said that segregation and slavery had been justified on the basis of the Bible. Well, I'd never heard anyone talk like that, because I thought science is the epitome of human culture. And America is the moral gold standard for the world. So I was very struck and impressed by what he said. Besides that, there was an enormous emotional power in the music, choir of maybe 3,000 singing, and Billy Graham saying, but now you can have a new life, you can start all over, you can just be born again and you can be a new person and break out of your life the way it was and everything's going to be great. So I was just turned 15. I just loved it. Fell into it, got born again. My parents were horrified and angry. And that was part of the fun of it. And joined an evangelical group and suddenly I could live my life on a much bigger canvas. It was 
God and Satan. It was it was cosmic forces. I was no longer. I was going to say I wasn't in Kansas anymore. I did think of it as something like falling in love with the Wizard of Oz when I was a child, and suddenly I could be in a world that wasn't Kansas. It was Oz. There was a great and powerful wizard who turns out to be a humbug. There was the Wicked Witch. There was Glinda the Good. Um, there was a huge canvas to play with, a huge landscape to enter. And I could be going there with Dorothy with her little dog Toto and the Tin Man and the, and the Straw Man. Anyway, I don't mean to go into all of this, but falling into this born-again religion was like that. Uh, living in an imaginary world that was much bigger than the world I actually lived in. And it was great. Until it wasn't. Uh, about a year later, I fell out of love with it and left that church because people were saying things that were antithetical to what had drawn me into it. So I just left the whole thing and, and absorbed myself with poetry and music and dance. And I decided I was going to be a professional dancer. I wanted to be Martha Graham at the time. She was, she was the one that I knew about growing up in California. I didn't know much about the dance world in New York, but I got here to study with her company. And it was great, except I found out that I wasn't that great. Uh, I was pretty good, but in New York that gets you waiting on tables for maybe 30 years, and I wasn't in for that. So I decided plan B was to go back to graduate school. I'd always been good at that stuff. Applied to five different universities in five different fields, actually. It was Brandeis in philosophy and social thought at Chicago and art history at NYU with Meyer Shapiro and English at Columbia and a doctoral study program in the study of religion at Harvard. And when the responses came back, I realized that the Harvard program was a secular university. I had a chance to find out what had hit me in that evangelical born-again experience five years before. What was it that was powerful about it? Why on earth would I be captured by something that was so irrational? So I went back and you could study at Harvard in the doctoral program. You could study uh, mystical Islam with Anna Marie Schimmel or you could study Judaism uh, with major specialists in that field. You could study Christianity or Buddhism. And I thought Christianity and Buddhism are interesting. But Christianity is what I have to struggle with. It's my culture. And could I find out how the Christian movement started? I mean, who really was Jesus? What do we know historically about all of that? How did that movement start? And it wasn't long before I learned at Harvard that you really couldn't get back there historically. We just don't have much information. But by that time, I discovered that my professors had file cabinets full of secret gospels that I'd never heard of. Dozens of secret gospels, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Truth and the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and Jewish texts and Egyptian poems about the goddess Isis and all kinds of marvelous stuff, 
fell in love with it. What was amazing about this is that we suddenly had this whole, there were 50, 52 different separate texts, never been seen before, they hadn't been read before, they were just totally lost. We knew some of the titles, but we had no clue. And people thought of Christianity as what you know today from, say, Roman Catholicism to Christian Science or Quakers, big spectrum, lots of Protestants in the middle, Orthodox, whatever. But that's only a small stream compared to what there was 2,000 years ago, when the teaching of Jesus according to the Gospel of Thomas was, was something I just found captivating. I didn't care if Jesus had said it or not, but it said that Jesus had said things like, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And I thought, hey, you don't have to believe that. It just happens to be true. Mm -hmm. Now, it's 25 years later from the time that I started working on this. And now I think we understand something quite different about the Gospel of Thomas. What it looks like more than anything else when you put it in context with other historical material is Jewish mystical thought, Kabbalah. But Kabbalah, we thought, is first known from written texts from the 10th to the 15th century from Spanish Jewish communities. Because before that, there was a prohibition on writing about secret teaching. You're not, it's mystical teaching, you're not supposed to write. Because immature people can get megalomaniac if they just say, oh yeah, hey, I'm divine or something. You know? mm -hmm. they, they take it in a foolish way. So there was a prohibition on teaching anyone mystical Judaism before he was 35 and certainly not to women. And you can't write it down because you don't know what fool could get hold of it if you did. People were old by Sorry. 35, so you know, you had to be kind of mature mm -hmm. Jewish man <laughs> mm -hmm. to have access to that kind of teaching. Now, I think, and others who study Jewish mystical thought at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem suspect that this tradition goes back 2,000 years. Now, this text says it's Jesus' secret teaching. Could it be? It could be. I don't know if it is or not. But anyway, it, it's fascinating to see that what Jewish, what rabbis called mystical thought was labeled by Christian bishops in the fourth century to be heresy. And I think that's when I realized how religious imagination and politics coincide. Because the politics of it in the fourth century when Christian bishops were beginning to say, well, Jesus, who was Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus was God in human form. And he's the only one, I mean, he's the only one who's the Son of God in human form. So you can create a monopoly on divine energy and power with a religion that has the only access to the only person in the universe who ever channeled God directly or became, was God and became human.
So that works very well for Orthodox Christianity. These other texts suggest that Jesus, if he taught this sort of thing, if one imagined that he did, never thought of himself that way at all. And that other people, whoever put the Gospel of Thomas together, didn't think of him that way. They thought of him as an enlightened person who understands that being created in the image of God means that you have a direct connection with the divine. That's, that's the central theme of Jewish mystical thought. And seeing Jesus that way would be antithetical to creating an institution like the Catholic Church or any other church that claimed to be the only true salvation. Because it's much more like a Buddhist idea that the Buddha is a person like you, like me, anybody. But he's enlightened, and you can become enlightened if you work on it. So that's where these discoveries are really changing the way we understand how these cultural traditions shaped and how they became part of the culture in very different forms than they had begun. And I find that enormously exciting. They involve everything from attitudes about gender and sexuality to attitudes about power and politics, um, about race and gender and ethnicity. That's why I began to write about Adam and Eve. I mean, who cares about Adam and Eve? What you realize when you start looking at the way those traditions play out in the culture is that they still do, of course. They still do in the laws of the United States or the laws of Britain or the laws in Africa to this day, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the laws about against homosexuality and the ones that claim that the only true marriage can be a marriage between a man and a woman for the purpose of procreation. Mm -hmm. The Defense of Marriage Act that was written by Professor Robbie George at Princeton for W.H. G.W. Bush, I guess, for G.W. Bush. So these things are still resonant, often very unconsciously, in the culture. The way I'm looking at it was very new to me, and it was new to my field, for sure. Am I the first person? I mean, there are sociologists who thought this way. Emil Durkheim uh, and Max Weber uh, talked about politics and religious imagination or ideology being completely intertwined, uh, and, and I think they're right about that. But I don't think historians had written that way mm -hmm. about, for example, what I call the social history of Satan. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I started thinking about Satan, that's another old story. Old stories about Satan, how, how a good angel went bad. And I just started writing about the stories Muslim stories, Jewish stories, stories that Jesus' followers invented and amplified about Satan. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that they are, in fact, not just fantasy stories as I imagined when I started, but they landed me right back in the real world about stories about how communities divide, uh, how people degrade and literally demonize other people. Uh, it led me to discover the origins of Christian anti-Semitism. And when I did, I was just dumbfounded. I thought, I didn't, I wasn't looking for that. I didn't expect that. I didn't expect 
fantasy stories to land me right back in the real world. But they are stories about a being, Satan, one of whose names is Mastema, which means hatred. And it is about hatred, uh, the way these stories play out to this day. Some people call these penumbral images, that is, images in sort of an unconscious part of the culture. And they are. Mm -hmm. But I began to realize, for example, that even in the stories about Jesus in the New Testament, I was thinking, well, okay, the story is pitched in the New Testament as a battle between the Spirit of God and the, and, and the evil power. And I thought, okay, so who, what's going on on the ground? Uh, Jesus and his disciples are walking through Galilee. And obviously they embody uh, the work of the Spirit of God. That's what happens at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark when the Spirit of God comes on Jesus and, and a voice comes from heaven and he's proclaimed to be the Son of God. So I figured, okay, Jesus and the followers, that's where the Spirit of God is. Now, where's Satan? And I thought, well, that would be uh, the Romans who crucified Jesus on charges of being a, a, a Jewish religious revolutionary against Rome. That's the charge that was written on the cross. That's the sentence that was given only to slaves and to people who were traitors to the Roman Empire including Jesus, of course. And so I thought it would be the Romans who crucified Jesus and the Jewish authorities who cooperated in the process. That's the story I remembered. I knew this pretty well. I was studying the New Testament. So then I went back and started to read the stories. I was amazed because these stories always identified Satan only with the Jews, only with Jews, with Judas, whose name Judas in Greek looks almost like the word for Jew in Greek, Judas, 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 the one who's betrayer. And then the Jewish priests, and the Gospel of Matthew then expands it to what the author calls the whole nation, crying out, his blood be upon us and upon our children, trying to persuade a reluctant Roman governor to sentence this man to death, which the governor says he's innocent. There's no reason to sentence him. He's done nothing wrong. He's not a revolutionary. What's wrong with you people? But the way the gospel stories are told is uh, with the implication that the Romans had nothing to do with it. They actually didn't want to do it, but the Jewish crowds insisted. And they insisted because there was a religious quarrel among Jews that didn't matter to the Romans at all between followers of Jesus and people who didn't like it. But that's not what the history tells us. History is very clear. Jews didn't crucify people. They didn't have the equipment. They didn't have the tradition. It was totally counter to their culture. Um, didn't happen. The people who didn't like him were, well, the chief priest didn't like him because he caused problems and started public demonstrations, people for and against him. But the people who 
sentenced him and arrested him were Romans because they were told that he claimed to be a king of the Jews. And that may be true, that he claimed to be that, and that he might have thought he was. And so he was guilty of insurrection, and we know that that's the charge on which he was crucified. But the Gospels go to great lengths to say, well, yeah, we know he was crucified on that charge, but he was innocent. The whole thing was a mistake. The Jewish crowds and the, and the chief priests deceived the Romans. Now, that's not what happened historically. We know that. So what I realized is there was a defensive move on the part of the people writing the stories after the death of Jesus because they had just lost a Jewish revolution against Rome and their lives were in danger. It was dangerous to be a follower because of that. So what the writers about Jesus did was say, well, no, 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 but it wasn't it wasn't really true that he was an insurrectionist. He probably wasn't, actually. Um, it, was, it was the Jews who made this happen. The Romans were wrong. The Romans probably were wrong, but they didn't know it. <laughs> and so it was a defensive move on the part of the followers of Jesus to blame other Jews in a time when they were very vulnerable. And also they were being accused of heresy by other Jews, accused of following a deceiver. So it made a lot of sense. But what I'm saying is that in the fourth century, when the Roman Empire, to everyone's shock, adopted Christianity, which had been illegal, as its state religion, then it became dangerous not to be a Christian. And that's when anti-Jewish prejudice became legal disability as one scholar has put it. And that's when legal penalties against Jews, for example, if, if a rabbi were to convert someone to become a member of the Jewish community, he could be burned alive in the fourth century. So that becomes part of the history of Western anti-Semitism. Who knew? <laughs> Nobody had put it together that way before. They had known that the charges were wrong, but the association with Satan was not something anyone had written about. And I think it's very much part of the story because people still talk that way, uh, dehumanizing enemies as monsters, beasts, evil, still the language of rhetoric in our politics. You know, I think of Antonio Damasio who's written about rationality and how it's not as good as many rational thinkers imagine mm -hmm. in terms of the way we actually respond to situations. Mm -hmm. That much of the way people respond to crisis, shall we say, political crisis, social crisis, financial crisis, has to do with the way we interpret these events. And the interpretation is an imaginative one, or many imaginative ones, and these, these old ancient stories still play within the culture, often quite unconsciously. In a conversation that uh, some time ago that involved Steve Pinker and Daniel Kahneman and me and others, Pinker suggested, Pinker told us that when he was on a curriculum committee at Harvard, he wanted to have entered into the record Daniel Kahneman's statements 
on the irrationality of much of human thought. And I find religious traditions, I don't think of them primarily as irrational. I think of them primarily as imagination, which is what they are, for better and for worse. And I think it's because of the way they play into intense emotional responses very often. Uh, I think it's very important to understand what of these traditions we need to throw away and what we might want to recognize and keep, if any. It's not a matter of do you believe in them or not. It's a matter of recognizing that religious traditions, the power they convey, is that they articulate the values of a culture. Mm -hmm. I learned this first most clearly, not at Harvard, but when my husband and I were visiting in the southern Sudan and visiting Francis Deng, who was then the foreign minister of the southern Sudan, the son of a great chief in Sudan with 50, uh, his father was a chief with 50 wives. There were many people named Deng in the southern Sudan and still are. And Francis had left his village and gone to University College London for his education. And there he wrote a book of Dinka folk tales, of D the folk tales of his people. And when he showed me his book, I was very impressed with how practical the stories were. Uh, the story of creation is about what men do, what women do, why we die, uh, what work we should do, uh, who you can marry, things like that, very practical. And I realized that, that Western creation stories were equally practical. And that these, these ancient things are not just cultural fossils. They communicate the values of the culture. They communicate values about sexuality and procreation and, and, and attitudes about death and attitudes about work and men and women and what's appropriate to genders and so forth. And, and that's, that's the work they do, and, and for that reason they're deeply part of the culture, whether they're Jewish traditions or Buddhist traditions or Hindu traditions or Muslim. And so studying these traditions is the study of uh, comparative cultures. That's why I think it should be done in middle school. I wish we could do it in middle school when about the age of 12, it's a great time to show and, and for, for people that age to recognize that some people are brought up in cultures very different and will have very different responses to similar stimuli. I, I was curious about questions about gender and sexuality and wonders, many other topics, but at a certain point in my life, Heinz, my husband, and I had to deal with the loss of our son Mark. He was six years old and from the time he was born we knew he had a heart problem and we knew from the time he was two that he wouldn't live long. So we were living with this um, awareness that our only child would have a very short lifespan. And he died when he was six and my husband and I decided we're not going to be defeated by this, so we adopted two children, babies, 
and then my husband was killed in a, in a hiking accident, which was a triple shock because it was so completely unexpected. He was in perfect health, and, and then he just vanished, uh, devastated our family, utterly devastated. I was totally devastated. Um, so the work that I do, I started writing about Job. I started writing about about obstacles and and uh, how people interpret illness and death and accident as punishment for sin. One anthropologist said, suffering feels like punishment. And that's not unique. It does all over the world, whether you're African or Greek or Hopi or uh, American, uh, you know, from California, New York, or Idaho. That's how people interpret it most often. And that's what our cultural stories have taught us to do. So I find this work is a way of exploring how people deal with those things and how people deal with, after all, illness and death happens in everyone's life. Um, and we all have to deal with things that are very painful and things often that we can't explain. So how do we do it? Uh, I th we do it with by interpreting events. And I think the question of how we interpret them is enormously important. A uh, question of whether we interpret them to mean that everything is awful and is always going to get worse and we're just going to you know, lose everything eventually and then we're going to lose our life too. And you can go into depression that way, and many people do. And I've decided I don't want that. So these religious traditions often suggest other alternatives to total depression. Buddhism has ways of doing it, Judaism has ways of doing it, Christianity has ways of doing it. And I don't, I, I'm not too proud to say I'm exploring those ways of doing it because I think these have worked for the human race for a long time. At a certain point before those events happened, I met someone I'd always wanted to talk to, and that was E.O. Wilson. Uh, and I wanted to ask him, for decades I'd wanted to ask him whether he thought religion had a socio-biological function. And he said, oh, well, of course. <laughs> and he told me that his talks about global warming and population were patterned on the Baptist sermons he heard as a child in the South, in the Christian South. And that he used the same techniques as the Christian preachers when he preached atheist sermons about science. And they work because he understands the emotional ways to do that and interpret these events. So I think that's one of the important aspects of understanding how, how our imagination works, how we interpret things, and what ways of doing so are most conducive to well-being. At the moment, I'm very excited about discovering a very different tradition. I had thought in graduate school I wanted to take courses on Buddhism with a brilliant teacher at Harvard. But as soon as I started to go to his lectures, I realized that without the languages, without Sanskrit, and without Pali, and without Tibetan, or any of those languages at all, any Oriental languages, 
I had very little sense of what these texts were saying. But at the time I was studying Hebrew and Greek and Coptic and French and German, and it, I knew it was impossible to take on um, Indian languages or uh, the languages which are cognate with Chinese. So I dropped the study of Buddhism. But now, at this point in my career, um, I'm working with a colleague who is a specialist in Tibetan Buddhism. His name is Jonathan Gold, teaches at Princeton. Uh, he translates 11th century and 13th century Tibetan texts very well, apparently. Not that I could judge. But I suggested to him that we teach a course together called Jesus and Buddha. And he took the challenge. He said, I don't know much about Christianity, and he doesn't. And I said, I don't know much about Buddhism, and I don't. <laughs> so I'm reading the texts he prescribes for our students, and he's reading the texts that I prescribe. And we're looking at them together, and we're teaching them in classes that have hundreds of students at Princeton, and learning from each other, both about resonances between the two traditions and about deep dissimilarities. People who say all religions say the same thing don't know much about them. These are culturally extraordinarily distinct and specific. Buddhist culture sees your lifetime and mine as one of countless lifetimes, mm -hmm. which we have had in so many forms, in animal forms like the Buddha as a fish, as a, as a rabbit, as a, as, as, as a bird, uh, as a merchant, as somebody of a different gender, um, that's a different, very different context of understanding identity and one's relationship to what we call the animal world or the plant world or the natural world. I mean, in, in Jewish, Muslim, Christian cosmology, we see in an individual life, maybe part of a tribe, but nevertheless, it's an individual lifetime. It's highly distinct from animals and plants by our superior rational mind um, and dominates them. It's very different from the way, say, a Mohawk person in, in the, the traditions of his tribe or her tribe, or a Tibetan or Chinese would perceive these. Mm -hmm. And I'm very much interested, partly from my relationship with my wonderful husband, about how Western science teaches us the superiority of human rational rationality to that of animals or of any other species, to the way that other cultures see that relationship as a much more fluid one, for example. Well, Heinz and I had a lot of fun with the difference between our interests. He at first said, religion, why would you do that? You're talking about nothing real. And I would say, well, you're talking about elementary particles. You can't see them. You can't, you know, what, what, is, what about that is, is, has impact in the real world? And he, he was irritated and amused and provoked and interested in those questions, and so was I. And, and that was a great deal of fun for both of us. He had proposed that we write a book called uh, The Cosmic Gospel or The Gnostic Code, um, in which we would write it together. 
but we never had that opportunity.